Welcome back to the show, folks. This is Burt Whiteley on AM650 KDEL Delivery. I'm here with Eric Irons, General Manager and Owner of Delivery Steelworks. Mr. Irons, welcome to the Gators Grotto. Happy to be here, Bert. Thanks so much for having me. Now tell me, Mr. Irons, to what do you contribute the recent success of the steel mill? Well, Bert, it just comes down to good business sense and a steady hand on the tiller. Which you can take all the credit for, I bet. Now, I know our audience is curious about the recent spate of accidents at the mill. Could you talk about that a bit, Mr. Irons? Those accidents have been tragic, surely, but I can guarantee you that we have bolstered every single one of our safety precautions. And, of course, we are taking good care of those poor men's families, you can be certain. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I'm sure financial compensation can just about solve all our human troubles. It's the only thing you can really rely And that's all the time we've got left, folks. Thanks to Mr. Irons for calling into the show. And now we've got a little bit of that good old Duran Duran. Welcome, everyone, to Coven, Episode 5. Content warning at the top here for hospitals and discussion of AIDS, on-screen heroin use, insects, and just a touch of body horror. But just a touch. Our theme music, as always, is by the illustrious Ben Cronin. You can find us on Twitter at coven underscore podcast, online at covenpodcast.com, and please consider tossing us a rating on iTunes as it helps new folks find us. everybody. Welcome to Coven and our first episode of Sorcerer. My name is Noah Lloyd. You can find me on Twitter at Noah Gola. I'm going to be the GM for the foreseeable future. I've come up with some statements about the game, the campaign that we're going to be playing here. We've got two statements which the rules of Sorcerer ask us to define at the outset. One of them is a statement of environment and the other is a description of sorcery and the demons. For our environment, We have striated, uh, by which we mean class divides, striated, Gulf Coast town, and strip malls. And for the look and feel of sorcery, we have unseen doorways and visceral decay. My goals as GM are the following. I'm going to make the NPCs people with their own agency and drives. I'm going to empower our characters to be played as hard as possible. Make the setting feel like the 80s in both glitz and grit and make violence short, brutal, and consequential. It's May 1984. 20 years have passed since most of the episodes of our Kingdom game. On Main Street in the livery, construction is nearing completion on a new multi-million dollar police station. Stephen F. Austin K-12 school is now Stephen F. Austin High School, with three middle schools funneling into it from surrounding neighborhoods. School is out, and the water park, now called Swampland, is open for business. The swamp itself has been reduced by residential expansion to a mere three square miles, and on the north side of town, we open with a funeral. At the funeral, we have a character that we already know, Ruby Bataille, 
who is attending with her daughter, Joan Bataille. Sharon, will you tell us a little bit about Joan? Sure. Um, Joan is Ruby's 16-year-old daughter. Uh, She attends the local high school, and she works at uh, the jazz club on the weekends, and she's an aspiring singer. What else? Anything anything you feel especially pertinent? Should we, uh, demon that could stuff? be it. Should I what mention she looks stuff like, what she's wearing? Yeah, yeah. Give us some like physical description. Like if we were setting this in a in a film, right? What would people notice? Yeah, um, I think that she is fairly slight, pretty thin. Um, doesn't look particularly strong, but also isn't out of shape. We've talked about her having run track before, so you know, sort of a lean long lean body um and yeah i guess brown hair (laughs) um yeah so the funeral is for willie may hooks who passed away probably a little under a week ago we are at the kind of the burial portion of the funeral so the funeral was probably held at a uh, majority black church uh, on this side of town and uh, folks have come out here for um, her laying to rest. And we also see her grandson, Robert Chessimard, who is probably seated in a seat closer to the casket. Gary, will you tell us about Robert a little bit? Um, Robert is 25, dark-skinned African-American male, um who is sitting not too far from the casket um looks you know gloomy as anyone would burying their grandmother um but there's also a kind of unease on his face because his entire extended family is there most of whom um he you know doesn't necessarily see eye to eye with um because they disapprove of his career choices as of late um including his mother, um, who he is sitting um, right next to, um, in between he and his sister. And he is wearing the necklace um, which his demon is bound to. And although the necklace isn't, you know, doing anything particular, it's kind of, you know, has him in a real like sedated frame of mind and he just can't keep his eyes off the coffin you know even as the ceremony comes to an end what are what are you thinking about especially while you're while you're focused on the on the coffin robert robert just remembers all those old wives tales that willie may told him as a kid um you know she would always say that ghosts and demons and spirits are real and that they exist in the swamps and he always just sort of took it as oh silly grandma and even though he has had contact with a demon um he doesn't know just how much Willie Mae was you know being truthful or what other secrets Willie Mae might have been hiding from him and now is almost a look of longing and regret because he never tried to learn more about this when he moved back to delivery Mm -hmm. there are flowers arranged around the gravesite and from 
where you are sitting, Robert, you're sitting, you know, near one of these, I'm not sure what you would call them, kind of canvas frames holding a large bouquet, right? And hanging from it is a tag which says, my deepest condolences, your friend, Professor Fuller. And we're going to cut quickly to jump across town to a hospital room. Um, tell us about the the gent we meet in the hospital room, Kiefer. Yeah, in the hospital room we have Samson Sycamore. He's uh, sort of not heavy set, but like not thin. Yeah, like a former football player gone to seed. Um, I'm picturing him in my mind as like Michael Shannon with James Gandolfini's body type. Amazing. Yeah, he's got typically like pretty greased hair, very much like an 80s guy, but not like too much of an 80s guy. Um, specifically thinking of this picture of Michael Shannon, if it's helpful to people who aren't just listening. Uh, he's, yeah, he's just a nice family man who has, is had just had a child with his second wife, Sylvia. Yeah, he's in the hospital. Hopefully he's doing okay. What is he wearing at the moment? Like, is, is he, he in like, scrubs, or is he just in, like, a, not scrubs, but a, um, is he in a hospital gown? Um, that's what I was imagining. Like, is he okay. visiting in the hospital, or is he a patient? Well, he came for testing, right? I don't think that he is necessarily a full-fledged, um, or maybe even had the testing done a few days ago and has had to come back. Okay, then, yeah, I don't think he's in a gown. I think he's wearing, like khakis and a kind of loose-fitting light blue polo shirt with tan loafers. So give me a name for his doctor, the doctor he always sees. Um, Ryan Armstrong, Dr. Ryan Armstrong. Okay, so Dr. Armstrong comes in. He's older. He's in probably his early 70s even. So he has kind of a shock of gray hair. He's always wearing a suit underneath his his doctor's coat, his white coat. So he comes in, and I think you have probably known him for as long as you've lived in the livery, which is going on 16 years now, right? Shortly around the, the birth of your daughter. Dr. Armstrong comes in, and he has kind of an expression on his face that you have never really seen before. He's carrying a clipboard, and he kind of tosses it on the counter. I imagine you're in a private exam room, right? Do your friends call you Sam or do your friends call you Samson? I know that when you're performing, you're Sam's sick, but is that only performance or is that your friends as well? I think it varies. I think in this context, I think the doctor would call him Sam if he was being friendly and Samson if he was being serious, maybe. Like you would expect to be called okay. Sam. Sure. Samson, do you want to tell me exactly how the fuck this happened? How the fuck? What happened? Samson, you came in for a particular kind of testing, and there are only a couple of reasons why you do that. I'm not even going to tell you how the results came out until you tell me why you think it was a possibility. I just wasn't feeling well. I got scared that, you know, it's all over the news. It just felt like something that just wasn't feeling well. But is it? There are only two kinds of people in this world who get AIDS, Samson. I don't 
think that's Really? Yeah, really. That's it? That's it. You have it. Fuck. Go home. Tell your wife. I can't tell my wife. Dr. Armstrong just gives you the, like, the one of the dirtiest looks you've probably ever received in your life. And picks up his clipboard and walks out. I think you can feel in the veins in your forearms because they are some of the closest to the skin. You can feel a, uh, a pulse, which almost feels like the vibrations of laughter. <laughs> we cut back across town to, um, Robert, you still live with your parents, right? No, so Robert, I was, I left my folks' home about three years ago um, after an argument with my mom. Okay. You're, you're in your former home, the, the home you grew up in where your parents now live? Yes. You're surrounded with your, your family, right? This is where the, uh, I don't think we would call it a wake, but it's where the, the party happening after the funeral is being held. So there's, you know, it's the strange sensation of you both being home and it not being home for multivalent reasons, right? One of them being that you don't live here anymore. And another one of them being that all the furniture has moved around, right? And it's full of people wearing black that you've, many of whom you only know tangentially and have met a couple of times. So your mother, Lorraine, is there, as is your father, of course, your younger sister, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Your aunt, Lula, who is in a wheelchair, um, because she does not have legs. And as well, there are some some folks you know from the Rogue, from the club. So there's Ruby, who's the, the general manager of the club now. She's brought her daughter, Joan, who I think you have definitely had some interactions with. Mm -hmm. Joan, there is also at the funeral someone you know, mm -hmm. Michael Rodriguez, who is your choir teacher choir director you are not sure why he's here but he's he's a tall man he's probably you know just shy of 6'1 um hispanic he's wearing a a nice black suit probably the nicest suit you've ever seen seen him wear he's normally wearing like his day-to-day -day outfit is kind of a white short sleeve polo and and slacks right mm -hmm. um because gesturing to the to the choir constantly is is an aerobic thing yeah, yes. Um yeah. So here we are. What what are the two of you doing as as we mill among the mourners? So Joan um because she's an aspiring uh musician and she's around uh the rogue a lot, she um is a bit of a fangirl for Robert, um and maybe slightly a little bit of a crush on him even though he's a bit older. So I think she is probably kind of like eyeing him and being slightly shy about it. Like she's not going to approach him, but is maybe paying more attention to him than she should at a funeral. And Robert is making the rounds and being the dutiful son and, you know, thanking folks, family and friends alike for coming and, you know, supporting the family through this hard time and, 
he is pleased to see that folks from the larger community have also come and you know the turnout was much more than I think you know Lorraine and Bill and Lula had expected so you know some of the party spills into the backyard into the front yard and so forth and yeah he's um he's trying to dispel the tension with his mother by you know being the good son and staying as far away from her and his father um and just you know being as good a host as he can be can Joan approach her choir director of course yeah yeah Okay, yeah, so can she approach him and just um, make an observation, just saying, I um, I didn't know that you and Willie May were friends. I, I met her a few times. I don't know that we would say we were friends. I'm more out of, here out of respect to the, to the Hooks and Chessamord family. I know Lula fairly well. Makes sense. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to find that out. <laughs> No, that's that's just like such a a like classic teenager awkward response. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be cool if um Robert sort of moseys on over too and you know is just sort of thanking um both of them for coming as well? <laughs> I assume that Joan is fairly tongue tied around Robert and um is probably always not sure if he remembers her or not because she's not terribly confident and is, you know, a 16-year-old. Real quick, what is um, her teacher's name again? Michael Rodriguez. Yes. This is the same character from um, who used to work at Tommy's General Store. Oh, that's... Tommy, oh, Tommy okay. Joe's General yeah, Store. Yeah, I was like, I remember now. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's grown up to be the choir director at the high school. Nice. Robert, there's a... A man who you have probably met once or twice. I think he's probably like a, a second or a third cousin of your mother's. His name is Vaughn Carter, and he's a lawyer. And he approaches you while you're you're talking to Mr. Rodriguez and to Joan, and you know just kind of touches you on the elbow and asks if you wouldn't mind, kind of stepping outside for a moment with him, so that so that the two of you can talk. Oh yeah, sure. What's uh what's going on? So he leads you outside as the two of you cross the the threshold into the backyard. We cut back across town real quick where Samson, I think that you probably went to the hospital to get your test results on your lunch break, right? Cuz it's the it's the middle of the day in May. It's not like you have summer breaks. You pull up in front of the steel mill offices. What kind of car do you drive, just out of curiosity? Probably, I don't know, like a new 1980s Mustang that's like really ugly, but he thinks is cool because it's new. Mm. I don't think he's got, or, or I don't know, do people drive trucks? And I don't think they drove trucks in the way they do now. I think it's a sports car. I think it's a Mustang. Cool. So just give us like a, a view of of what Samson looks like, whether you're describing his his interiority or just his his external affect as he parks and goes back into the office. I think he's I think he's thinking really hard. I think he's trying as to keep his face as blank as possible and go about things normally, but he feels very backed into a corner all of a sudden. Like he'd been 
like he finally got caught cheating at a game that he thought he was the only one who knew how to play. And Mm -hmm. he's trying to figure out what he has to do next. And so he's still greeting everybody he sees who, you know, goes out of their way to say hi to him, but he's not flat handing. He's not making an extra effort. He's probably a little disheveled. He's probably put on, is it, what did we say? What time in 84 it is? Summer of 84? May. It's it's May, yeah. It's like mid May. School's just let out, so we're we're in spring turning to summer. Do you think that you have to wear a blazer to a steel mill office in No Galveston for? No, okay. almost certainly not. Great, then he's still just rocking the polo. Right. Especially if you're the kind of person who goes on like plant tours regularly, right? You're just gonna wear something which looks nice but it's comfortable your golf outfit cool golf outfit it is um, perfect so he's still in the golf outfit okay and i think that this is basically like this is a prefab building and it's decently sized most of the desks are they're not in cubicles or anything it's an open office and then your boss eric irons he's the only one with kind of his own room who has an office right and the the way this hierarchy is structured the closer your desk is to the irons office the more sway you have in the company right he he keeps his right hand men and they're they are exclusively men closer to him and i think your desk is kind of right outside his office and you don't manage to sit down but for a moment before you see irons's head poke through the doorway and say Sam, get the hell in here. Uh-oh. What, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Irons, what, uh, what can I do for you today? Just got in, sorry. He, uh, you know, he walks around the, behind his large desk and, you know, kind of plops down into his chair. What does, what does Mr. Irons look like? Uh, like James Gandolfini with James Gandolfini's build. <laughs> okay. Great. At some point, we're gonna have to push you out of the James Gandolfini reference. But okay. Have you been rewatching Sopranos? No, he's just kind of like my go-to. Like that's what I think of like a big successful dude as looking like someone who's like, oh, okay. you know, like that's in, especially in like the eighties. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, definitely the guy running a steel mill in the South in a prefab building has James Gandolfini vibes. He can be blonde, yeah. James Gandolfini, if you want. Yeah, blonde for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like, like so blonde, it's see through, right? His hair. <laughs> yeah. Um. Wait. Sorry. How about he looks like John Goodman with John Goodman's build, uh, blonder hair. So he just looks like John Goodman, but with blonde hair. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I like I like John Goodman, and I like John Goodman for this role. Um, he he plops behind his desk. I think he is lighting a cigar, as you walk in you have seen him put his feet on his desk before when he is feeling especially pleased with himself but that's not something he's doing now he's leaning forward on his elbows and you know that this is kind of a uh, scheming posture shut the damn door sam and and of course take a seat yeah i do so sam what do you think is the most valuable thing about the livery where is the most money in the livery Probably in the water or the beach, I'd say. Sam, you gotta 
feel like the the nice, the friendly answer is to say the people. Do you want me to say the people? I don't think it's the people. <laughs> he he gives a good laugh at that. You you have you like mentally maybe make a little tick mark like okay he liked that one. I only want you to say the people when there are reporters around. But you you got to be thinking future tense, Sam. Future tense. What's what could be the most valuable thing in delivery? Uh, the land it's built on, I guess. Damn straight, Sam. Damn straight. And what's what's the only land that's yet to be grabbed up around here? I think there's, I'd say, about three square miles of swamp just sitting by the end of that park. That's right. We haven't known for a long time who's owned that land. But I have it on good authority that it may be coming up for sale soon. And you're suggesting that we're the interested party who purchases it? I'm suggesting... I'm suggested that we are the interested party that acquires it, which is why I dragged you in here, my boy. All right, I'm all ears. You are not the man I would send in for, shall we say, a straightforward purchase. I've got lawyers for that. I've got other people for that. I want you to figure out who owns that parcel and figure out how to get it for me by any means necessary. If the lawyers come back and the price is right, we'll go that route. But you are my contingency plan, my friend. Sounds, sounds perfect. I can't think of anything I'd rather do. Nothing like uh, separating a fool and their property. He, he doesn't laugh at that one. <laughs> and you probably make another mental note. It wasn't really. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, um, no, probably I was trying to make a joke. I almost said that I was going to be his contingency, Sam, but didn't feel like it was in character. Fair, fair. So let's, we jump back across town to the the funeral party again. Mr. Carter is standing outside with you, Robert, and he's he's telling you about Willie May's will. Now, Robert, everything I tell you is going to be under strictest confidence. You understand. As the executor of Miss Hook's estate... I am only privileged to divulge certain information to the right people. You understand? Ah, uh, so far so good, but um, you're looking kind of serious there, Vince. It's not like you. Sorry, it's it's Vaughn, oh, V-A-U-N. Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Oh, We've got man. a whole host of actors here today. God. <laughs> um, why so blue, Vaughn? A few months ago... Willie May came to me, said that she wanted to update her will. Now, there's nothing unusual about that, except for the manner in which it was updated. She had two wills, let's say. And he's he kind of looked over his shoulder, made sure there was no one else around. And as he's saying this, he's also, you know, pulling a cigarette out of a, a pack. As he's he's pulling the pack out of his pocket, you can see that his hands are maybe even shaking a little. He offers you one. Does Robert take it? Nah, you know I don't go for that. You you don't mind if I do, do you? Ah, uh, shoot. She had she had two wills, Robert. She had a public will, and then she had a private will. And the public will looks it looks fine. It bequeaths a certain amount of of money, not very much, but what she had to Lorraine and to Lula, and a a little to you and to your sister. Okay. But then in her other will. 
she leaves, well, what she described to me as everything else to you. And she wanted me to use that phrase, Robert, everything else. And now I'm not sure what she means by that, but all I know is that she was the owner of the last three square miles of the clearing, which I'm not even sure if your mother knows that. I did not know until a few months ago when she came in to update her will. And it's yours now, Robert. And he he takes kind of a, a manila folder out of a briefcase that he's been lugging around. And he says, I can hand this to you now. The deed is here. Made out in your name already. Or I can file this away for you. I can hold on to it. Hold up, Navar. You're telling me that Granny... Granny then left me... We're talking about the swampland, all the way out there in the boondocks. Yep. The the swamp, which has been hotly contested and been sought to be bought up by as many residential development companies you can shake a stick at. Robert is trying to conceal his excitement because, on the one hand, he can't know he can't let Vaughn know that he knows about this or at least about the significance of the swamp he swims in it mm-hmm. um but keeping with the act you know he's still why don't there. why don't we actually have you roll to see how well you do that hey um i like that so i am looking at your your will score which is five yes and we'll we'll call it vaughn's will score as well so go ahead and roll 5d8 for us it's a pretty good roll and vaughn's gonna have 3d8 nice. so you tie on the first three yeah so what gary rolled was an eight eight seven three two uh and then i had i gave vaughn 3d8 in his will and he rolled eight eight seven which ties the first three and then uh robert had two more so robert wins that so you yeah you manage to keep kind of a perfect poker face and you kind of project a sense of as much confusion as vaughn has been describing to you that he is feeling oh damn man well you know he can't turn back the clock and i don't know what granny was thinking and trusting me with all that land but what shall be shall be and he, I understand Vaughn, you know, takes out the papers from his briefcase and uh, Robert takes out a pen that he just happens to have on this person and scrutinizes the paper and, you know, legal lease and so forth, um, but doesn't do so that intently and, you know, signs after a minute or so of just pouring through the pages. Carter says that he will get you a copy of this in a few days' time. Now, Robert, I, I want you to understand. I know this is a confusing time for all of us, and we can we can give this some time to think on, but I want you to understand this land, you know, we've got the, ooh, ooh, we needed the name for a neighborhood. 
uh, Kiefer, what is the name of the neighborhood the Sycamores live in, right? The kind of um, upper middle class neighborhood that they live in. I don't think it's a gated community probably, right? But it's definitely the kind of residential area you drive into and there's a stone stone pillars on either side with the name of this community on it. You mean can I just do the stable? Or the stables? Yeah. Yeah, the stables. That's good. Yeah. Or sheltered shores, one of the two. I like the stables. Sheltered hey. we'll we'll hang on to sheltered shores for for something else. So this is this is still Carter speaking to Robert. Now, Robert, I I want you to to realize this is this is the land that lies directly between the stables and the water park and swampland. This this land is worth millions now. I I want you to understand that your situation has changed dramatically here. God, you're right. And he's actually genuinely surprised here because he never would have guessed um, just how much in value that land has gone up since his childhood. You know, that's, that's a pretty big fucking deal, man. Now, you mentioned this was her secret will and that the people who know already know. Um, but who else knows about this? Have you approached anyone else with this news no sir this was this was part of her will this is part of what has me a little nervous if i if i am to be fully honest with you she came in made me swear to her trust that i would tell no one but you man you show is good kinfolk man i'm just saying if the roles were reversed and it was me coming up to you with this kind of news, I don't know if I would have been totally honest, man. I would have tried to get a cut of the pie myself. Carter Carter definitely laughs at that. Uh, I don't know if you're being serious or not, but Carter thinks that you are um, teasing him a little bit. Um, and he, he kind of laughs at that and put his puts a hand um, on your shoulder and, and says, let's, let's go get some tea, Robert. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, Aunt Lula always makes the best sweet tea. Tea Lula, I should say, not Aunt. So let's jump back to Joan real quick. Joan, you're you're in a, a black dress, probably, right, of some kind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and wearing black gloves or black nail polish or something like that? Let's go with black gloves since it's a cool. funeral. Yeah, yeah. Your mother, what are you doing when your mother approaches you? Hmm, probably kind of like loitering around the kitchen trying to look busy because she doesn't want to talk to people. <laughs> so like mm -hmm. picking at some food. Yeah, so there's probably a, like a main big table which has a lot of food on it. And then in the kitchen itself is kind of the staging area for dishes that have been brought away from the main table and dishes that have yet to go to the main table. And there's there's a group of women sitting around the, the table in the kitchen and you have likely just kind of wandered in there and are picking a few things. And mm -hmm. your your mother approaches you and, and puts a hand on your shoulder. How are you doing, sweetie? Uh, I'm doing all right. 
doing all right, but I only know two people here. I uh, feel a little awkward. Uh, how are you doing? She was your friend. She was she was your friend, too. She came into the Rogue all the time. That's true. I did see her grandson, though. He's looking fairly handsome today. Oh, Joan, this, this isn't exactly the place. Okay, okay, you're right, you're right. Are you are you about ready to go? We've got a shift tonight. Um, yeah, whenever whenever you're ready. Um, and she squeezes your shoulder a little bit. We can read that how we want, whether it's protectively or controllingly. Yeah. And we'll guide you towards the exit. All right. So I'm going to suggest we fast forward to that evening, unless somebody has something that they want to do. Let's say let's say this is a Friday, right? Um, mm-hmm which would give Samson a reason to come in and play with the quartet tonight if that's something he feels like and definitely gives a reason for Robert and Joan to both be present at the Rogue. Uh, Is there anything anybody wants to do in the interim between now and say like, I don't know, seven or eight tonight? No. Um, so rather than fast forwarding all the way to this evening, I was thinking maybe we could get another scene real quick with Samson kind of between the work day and are you planning? I think your quartet is planning to meet up tonight, Samson. Are you still planning on going? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, between work, you're probably going to go home, get changed, that kind of thing. What does this scene of going home look like, right? Now that you've got this news, you've got a new assignment from Mr. Irons. You know, give us a picture of your your home life, even if it's only for a few minutes as you pop in. Uh, I think the kids were, what, like 6 p.m., 5 p.m. on a Friday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're probably like 5.30, 6. Yeah, um... I think what, is, what does your house look like, right? Because we probably follow your car as it comes up the comes up the road through the stables neighborhood, and then pulls into the driveway. Uh, it's extremely McMansiony with like a brick facade and like more rooms than it looks like it needs. Swimming pool in the back, uh, very very nicely mowed and manicured lawn out front. Very few other decorations. It's just like very straightforward he's not i think maybe eleanor was a gardener but i don't think sylvia is and so they've kind of taken out all of the rose bushy kind of things that might have been there previously i don't think i guess there are yellow roses in texas at the very least um and yeah inside it's whatever you know we've all been in that house probably at some point in our lives that like very standard suburban like quote-unquote nice home that has the like more dark wood than you think and like pictures of the family there's probably crosses on the walls um there's probably like a cute little homily about bless this mess or something to that effect the kids rooms are all on the second floor probably everybody is yeah Maybe there's three stories. Master bedrooms are... A master bedroom would probably be on the ground floor, and then the kids would have the upper floor or floors. Yeah. Okay, good. Then they're going to need to be three floors. It can just be two floors, and the kids can be on the second floor. The master bedroom downstairs, nice dining room, separate kitchen. It's a nice house. 
and and show us the the kids either running around or uh in state or whatever yeah i think millie's out somewhere um being a teenager she probably like just got her driver's license uh solomon is in the backyard will you introduce your your kids as well yeah like how old is millie that kind of thing uh, Millie is 16. She is kind of, she's like very obedient and good, but also just kind of seems sad all the time. Uh, like very much kind of a bookwormy person. Um, she's out doing something on a Friday night, probably, I don't know, mathletes. Uh, <laughs> Solomon, the 12 year old, is a little bit of a, a little bit surly, a little bit sulky. Um, <laughs> He's not the easiest person to deal with, and his little brother, Dorian, is much more innocent, much more, like, lighthearted. Uh, they're probably playing together in the backyard. Solomon is probably bullying Dorian in that, like, older brother way. Wait, and how old is Dorian? Dorian is eight. Solomon is 12, so it's four years, four years, four years. 16, Are they 12. all with his ex-wife? or The first Dorian... three are with Eleanor, yeah. and then his infant daughter, Roxy, um, is oh. with his new wife, Sylvia. And they're probably, or they're definitely inside. Sylvia's down for a nap. Uh, or, Roxy's down for a nap. Sylvia's drinking a glass of white wine in the kitchen, looking exasperated. <laughs> nice. And then, so you come in, you know, you probably have a, a briefcase that you set down somewhere, hang up a coat that you didn't wear all day, and or a blazer, and then... Yeah, just give us a, a quick moment of interaction with with Sylvia, your wife. Um, honey, I'm home. She looks up. She does look exasperated. She's, you know, she's got one hand across her hip and the elbow of the other hand resting on that hand on her hip, holding the wine glass. And she just, she asks with the most tired expression, good day? Yeah, I think it was, uh... A pretty solid day. Mr. Irons put me on an exciting new project. I think he's, you know, he really sees potential in me. I'm going to take over here for him someday, maybe, I guess. As soon as you start talking about your potential, she kind of looks off into the middle distance and takes a sip of wine. Yeah, uh, that looks pretty good. Is there any more of that bottle in the fridge? Yeah, she reaches over and, like, opens the fridge door where there, the bottle is, like, mostly empty there's probably a half glass left and it's sitting in the door and as soon as she opens it she like turns sees what solomon is is doing to dorian and like strides towards the back door and like shouts through the through the screen door at solomon to to stop so how do you prep for the quartet tonight i think i drink a glass of wine in the kitchen real quick or i like maybe i just like finish the wine out of the bottle and grab a beer and go upstairs to change. The hair stays the same, but he changes into like, what is, I think maybe he wears the same, I don't know what people wear to a jazz club. Like, I think he wants to wear a suit, but I think it's too hot. Maybe he's wearing like a tan linen suit. Um, that's like 80s guy style, like really baggy and big and like doesn't really look good. Wide collar. Uh, he's not like, yeah. yeah, he's not like slim fit, hip, cat like he definitely looks like he's trying to be cool and doesn't really know how but he's pretty good at the trumpet mm-hmm. he he looks like he's trying to be a member of duran duran <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think there's a moment while you are looking in the mirror you know changing clothes when you have your shirt off and 
the 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 blue veins in your chest they throb for a second and you just get kind of a feeling which is hungry yeah and the feeling is not you know it's not hunger in your this is more for the listeners it's not hunger in your stomach it is something that you can kind of feel in your blood yeah well uh, get you something at the club buddy don't worry and is is there anything we want to see from robert between the the party and and going to work basically i think you you know you've definitely been told that you're not expected to come to work tonight of all nights so i think after he hears the news from um cousin vince vaughn carter um <laughs> you can't fault me <laughs> vince carter vince vaughn <laughs> anyway no i definitely can't fault, fault you for that no way but um, he, you know, goes back and they have some tea and, you know, just continue, you know, schmoozing with folks and he receives people. And eventually um, he asks his mother if, you know, she needs any help with, uh, you know, cleaning up and tidying up. And she says, you know, no, and kind of just, you know, not too coldly, but coldly dismisses him and. You know, he uh, just sort of goes to work, sees his sister, you know, goodbye and all that, and um, goes back to his place. And his place is not too far from where, I guess, I don't have a sort of map idea of delivery, but I imagine it's, you know, let's just say for ease, like somewhere between his house and the, uh, the nightclub, and it's a ratty little shack. And he essentially takes off his necklace and just starts talking, you know, talking to Imlac. And he's just like, yeah, man, it's about to be some real big shit popping. And, you know, Imlac's, I guess, unresponsive, but, you know, it's not. He just gets ready. Um, can I also describe what he usually wears? Yeah, please do. So I'm trying to sort of get a composite here. So this is the 80s and... Robert plays bass, but he isn't uh, as flamboyant or as extra as like a Rick James or a Prince or an Elder Barge. Dresses fairly conservatively um, compared to them, but still rocks the Jerry Coral because this is 84. And, um, you know, it's like dripping. It's, it's dripping. It's alive. It's. You know, it's, it's, it's here to play. And <laughs> he wears not really too much. Um, it's, I'm trying to think of Miles Davis in the 80s. He usually plays on stage with a silk, uh, like, kind of open T-shirt. Sometimes it's, like, you know, different colors. But tonight it's, like, a sort of black and gold uh, quasi leopard print. Um, open button silk shirt with like black pants and it sort of complements his uh, gold necklace that his grandmother gave him. Nice. I actually didn't realize that Imlac was gold, but I, I like that as a vibe quite a bit. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, and that's uh, got to wear the shades too. He wears shades for some mm -hmm. fucking reason. And um, yeah, that's, that's him walking on over to the club. Perfect. 
and also on their way to the cub to the cub to the club <laughs> are the batais ruby is driving her i have i have looked up the vehicle that kiefer posted for us uh way back when in like episode one um ruby is driving her 1962 dodge dart which is basically like has been ship of theseid theseus by by this point um there's basically no more of the original vehicle left and despite the amount of work it's had done on it i don't know if ruby has ever put in for a new paint job yeah and yeah what's the what is the ride like between joan and and ruby like is it tense is ruby kind of is she oblivious to joan is joan oblivious to her mother what's just like the mood in the car um i think that joan is fairly reserved like she doesn't share everything with her mother but if her mother asks her something she's she'll answer but she's not like super forthcoming about all of her thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. so maybe a little a little quiet but not not like hostile or anything and is there a um is there i get the feeling that ruby might use a euphemism when talking about avathon is there a nickname she has for it whether it's whether it's an actual name or just the um (laughs) <laughs> the the whatever that she yeah oh, I'm trying to think of something uh, I'm trying to think of like a good euphemism for the demon um oh I mean she could call it your earworm oh god oh that's so creepy like uh-huh uh, yeah we can do that but that like gives me like <laughs> so creepy <laughs> I mean we don't if if that's too much, we don't have to to go. No, with that. no, no. It's fine. It's like too perfect. But yeah. Okay. Yes, we so, can go with the ear war. It's just so cringy. <laughs> um, and I'm definitely going to be putting content warnings on all these episodes, so just so okay. folks know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the ride is, you know, it's kind of quiet. Ruby maybe you know interjects something occasionally, like, "Are you excited for summer?" Um. Or how are you feeling after the funeral, et cetera, et cetera. And then at some point she, you know, kind of looks your way and says, and how's the earworm doing? Is it, um, sorry, like question about the demons. Do they refer to them by genders? Like if she says like he is whatever, whatever, is that a thing? Yeah. I mean, I think that's up to us, right? Okay. And yeah. you right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, we can go with he. God, I guess I guess she would just sort of say that he's been fairly quiet today. Maybe, like, just a little bit dormant today. Mm, I like that. That's good phrasing. He's been he's been kind of dormant today. That's very much the kind of word that like a kid reads in uh like a science book for kids when they're little and realize <laughs> that it perfectly applies to something in their life and hold on to it forever. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we we arrive at the club, right? Everyone everyone arrives maybe in different at different moments. Ruby and Joan are probably the first to arrive since Ruby is the general manager and it's probably open before she gets there, but she still needs to be there to oversee things. Joan, you're we decided that Joan is kind of a a host slash server, is that right? Yeah, or just like we'll bust the tables or you know whatever okay. chores there are available she'll take 
Right. Okay. So give us a sense, because I get the feeling that Robert is going to be the, whatever group Robert plays with is usually the main event. And mm-hmm. I think that Samson's quartet is probably the, the lead up, right? It's the show that happens a little earlier and folks, it's more improvisationally oriented. You're probably playing more standards, that kind of thing, before we get to the funkier, slightly wilder stuff that Robert plays. Samson, show us the, you know, just give us a give us a, a picture of how full the crowd is. What what is the interior of the rogue like? This is something we haven't really discussed and we should we should all have input about this. I don't really feel like it's a dance club anymore, even though it might have used to be. You might be able to pull tables out of the center of the room for folks to dance, but I think it's mostly kind of small round tables with little green lamps on them. Yeah. Where that are kind of big for two or three people to sit at. <laughs> Gary, was that a thought percolating? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, you're so perceptive. Um, I was going to say this could be totally counter to what other folks might have thought, but um, I don't know. I kind of thought it looks like shit, <laughs> you know, like a down deep south podunk juke joint um, that's survived somehow into the 80s, you know, like wooden floors like little 80s like flourishes like i don't know would ruby be the kind of person to like want to keep it hip and modern and updated well that's that's something that sharon can probably speak to a little bit i i kind of feel like ruby would want to keep it up right because ruby was always so ruby was always so invested in her job yeah but i mean whether or not they would have the funding to keep it up that's true is yeah yeah so it could be like they try, but it's not necessarily like pristine condition or anything. Mm. Yeah, that's those are just my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Kiefer, do you have a a thought about any of that? Not really. I uh, feel like I have the least knowledge of jazz clubs of anyone in this game, but I I'm imagining that like just because of yeah, I feel like I have both the least knowledge of jazz clubs and the least claim to shape the space. Um, but I imagine there's at least some degree of like chrome on like napkin holders or like silver. There's some, there's, I feel like there's some kind of flashy metal somewhere. And Mm -hmm. I always think of spaces like this as being fuzzy. Maybe that's just because I associate them with opiates and red wine, but. Like fuzzy, like velvet paintings or fuzzy, like in the view. Uh, either. Um, I just think, like, generally, I think of the, I think of it as, like, a warm space, and whatever that means. But maybe it's actually a cold one, because I don't know anything Mm -hmm. about anything. I mean, so... Maybe it's a cold space that's trying to project the image of warmth and failing. Yeah, that's not bad. Because I do think that, from what we know of Ruby, she would have tried to maintain it but whether or not they have the funding is the big question Mm -hmm. so what why don't we try and strike a balance a little bit between it being you know hip upscale jazz club and it truly looking like shit right it's somewhere in between ruby (laughs) has has put effort into it right and you can tell that someone has been putting effort into it but it is still kind of you know it's just pedaling along it's just keeping on keeping on part of me is also thinking of those like david lynch type jazz clubs mm-hmm. um, yeah blue blue velvet is yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> just sitting in my head right now yes so maybe that's a good at least for now as we start refining it some more 
maybe the I forget the name of the actor who sings Blue Velvet in that movie. Maybe that is a good touchstone for us. Back to Samson. Give us just a quick picture of like what the crowd is like. Is the crowd here mostly like eating dinner and having drinks while you play in the background? And if so, how do you feel about that? Or are they, you know, really into it? Are they mostly paying attention to to the quartet? Uh, I think probably it's mostly background. I think there's a couple people up front who are paying attention and just having drinks, but the vast majority of folks are there. It's still pretty early, right? Like 7.30? I was rushing out of the house at 6, so it's people finishing up dinner on a Friday night waiting for the real show to start. And maybe like, yeah, I don't think the... I don't think Sylvia's at the show. I think she's at home. And I think Samson is like, just kind of doing his thing and his quartet is just doing their thing and they're having a good time, but they're not central to anything. And he's honestly kind of okay with that. Okay. And how is, how is the news you received earlier today affecting you, affecting your playing specifically? I think it's made the playing just a little bit more erratic, like not necessarily affected the quality, but whereas normally I think Samson tries to be like, very technically proficient and very like arpeggiated and whatever um now he's letting himself kind of feel things a little bit more probably not to an acoustically pleasant effect he's just sort of like it's almost like whining via trumpet (laughs) okay and when are you when and how are you planning on feeding abby's need After the set, I was thinking that either there is a set, I think he either goes out, depending on the night, to flirt with someone in the crowd, because he is quite charming, or he goes out, I think there's probably a crew of people who use, who hang out near the club that he's kind of falling in with, sort of, like, not that they're close, but that they know that he's always holding he's always willing to share let's let's have this setup happen your set winds down y'all probably play for 45 minutes it's you know 8 8 15 and there's going to be a 15 to 20 minute break while because y'all y'all's instruments you're probably an acoustic group get carried off pretty easily but the next group which is going to be front manned by robert takes a little bit more time to to get their instruments set up and in that interim, you are going to, you know, step outside and we'll have that scene in a moment. But Joan, I think that you are bussing a table mm-hmm. and you look over and you see your mother arguing with someone that you've never seen before. He's he's a little younger than your mother is. He's mm-hmm. not unattractive. You know, he's probably, I forget exactly what age we gave him, but I can find out. Uh, he's 43, so he's in his early 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a white man. He's got kind of he's got pretty dark hair, kind of like dark brown, almost black, mm-hmm. and he's wearing it in kind of a carefully coiffed mullet, and is wearing a what you can probably tell is a really fancy suit, right? Every yeah. once in a while, you get these folks from Houston who are wearing obviously more expensive clothing and you watch a lot of like music so he he looks actually almost like a music producer to you in his kind of like bearing and swag that he has he probably even has like a silver chain on one wrist yes but your mother is she's behind the bar and she is 
you know, she's got both hands on the bar. She's leaning towards him and having an obvious argument that she's, you can tell from the time she screamed at you that she's just kind of barely managing to maintain at a, at a whisper where other people won't be able to hear it. Uh, does, uh, are they currently arguing or does he walk yeah. away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, so this is between sets and this is just, this is happening. Your mother is whisper shouting at him right now. Okay. Can Joan kind of quietly, slowly walk over there just to like make sure everything's okay? Mm-hmm. Are you, so are you like actively trying not to be seen or are you just sidling up to your mother? Um, not actively trying not to be seen, just trying to like approach quietly, I guess, to like get a feel for what's happening before interjecting. So let's call this a stamina roll. Okay. So you're going to roll 2d8. All right. And I'm trying to figure out who would be more, it's probably, yeah, it would definitely be your, your mother. Okay, so... Sharon only has a two in stamina, so she rolled a five and a three. Mm. And I gave Ruby four D eight because we're rolling her will, like her paying attention to her surroundings. Mm-hmm. And she has a complete victory. She rolled two sevens, so she beats Jeez. both of Sharon's rolls. Nice. Yeah. So she sees you, I think, step behind the bar and you know, watching this scene, step behind the bar as you're going to approach, and she says she looks sharply at you and she says go find something to do in the kitchen and just like points towards the kitchen at which point the man who is sitting at the bar turns your way and he immediately stands up and says are you joan uh yes i am joan who who are you and ruby grabs his she like physically reaches across the bar grabs the sleeve of his jacket and says (laughs) elijah don't you fucking dare and he there's a pause he looks at ruby straight Uh into her eyes and then he looks towards you and says hi joan i'm your father (laughs) sorry um actually can we can we have joan just laugh because she doesn't know what else to do yeah yeah of course i think that's a a very (laughs) fitting reaction um what are you talking about? You're my father. My father, he would have come around by now if he was going to come around. You're definitely not my father. Ruby is, she's looking kind of like downcast after he has, he's said this. And she looks your way and looks, looks ashamed actually. And says, Joan, he's, he's telling the truth. This is Mr. Wild. And I am sorry to say he is your father. What? Then what are you doing here? Why are you here now? Uh, I think Ruby actually speaks up and says, we we should have this conversation somewhere quieter. And Elijah kind of looks between the two of you and he says, I, I think the girl deserves to, to hear it whenever and wherever she wants. Okay, then I want to hear it now. Tell me what you're doing here. Your mother has never wanted me to see you. And... Ruby, you know, through all of this, keeps trying to to interject. But at this point, he's just kind of plowing forward. But I, you're 16 now. I've been called here on business. I don't know when I'm going to be in the area again. And I've finally decided that I need to see you. I need to introduce myself. Whether or not your mother, despite her protestations. I mean, I, I don't... <laughs> I mean, that seems kind of shitty of you, to be honest. 
what what do you mean i'm i'm i want to meet my daughter yeah well it's kind of too little too late i don't what what am i supposed to get from this now if you're just here temporarily anyway he kind of he puts up both hands you know trying to to be like you know calm down chill out man we we should maybe have this discussion when we're not so hot-headed <laughs> what am i like on my period is that why we can't have this discussion right now what's wrong with you whoa whoa yeah i mean he is flustered right he is definitely flustered um this is not the the reaction he was expecting i don't i don't have to what's the phrase you just used if you're only going to be around temporarily i don't have to be here temporarily or you could come back with me you could you could see what i've got going on what? you ever you're been like... to new york no oh fuck god damn it you are from new york are you <laughs> um Okay, so she is about to protest, thinking that he's just from some, like, like Houston or something, or, you know, somewhere nearby. But when she hears New York, she kind of stops herself and just says, New York? What do you do in New York? Yeah, so he, he notices, like, you're suddenly a little bit more interested, and he says, well, I... I I, I buy things and I sell things, but I know I know a lot of people. What are you What are you into? I don't know anything about you. You know, are you you work you work in a club? Are you into music? I know I know musicians. I I you ever wanted to meet Madonna? I yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> God. Um. Yes, I would. Do you know Madonna? I we've run into each other. Um. <sighs> and I I think Ruby has like actually called over y'all have a bouncer what's the name of your bouncer gary wait yeah we could name him gary <laughs> no i think that's too confusing yeah yeah it's, it's too confusing hugo hugo's not bad how about hugo rick hugo rick bouncer he is i think he's african-american too and yeah so ruby has has kind of called him over and gestured to to Elijah with the usual kind of like eject sign. Yeah. So Rick kind of like grabs him by the collar and by the arm and starts escorting him out. And and Elijah's like, okay, 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 I'm I'm going, I'm going. But Joan, get a hold of me. I'm at Shay J. We can we can talk. And she he just kind of, he will be yeah. escorted off the premises. Okay. I mean, but what do you do at this point? Like, Ruby is standing there both, like, steaming and, like, we as viewers can tell that part of her anger is from her embarrassment that she is feeling about this situation. Yeah. Um, I think Joan kind of looks between them a little bit and, like, for her mother's sake, kind of rolls her eyes at him as he's being kicked out, but, like, secretly is intrigued by the New York connection because she has big dreams of leaving the small town and, you know, becoming something other than this small town girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you just hear, you hear a little voice in your ear and it's the first time you've heard it all day. And it says, you may come from him, but you're my little girl. Don't forget. Ugh, creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, this is this is the relationship that we established between yeah, you and I your know, demon. I know. So, like, it's perfect. <laughs> oh my god. Um, demon daddy. Oh my god, demon daddy. <laughs> um, so, does she speak to the demon 
like I don't know how demons work exactly in this universe. I know we're kind it of is, making it up. It is up to us, yeah. Okay. So do they speak out loud to the demons? Um, it's we can we can figure out how how we want to do it and it can depend on each person, right? Yeah. Um in the in the rule book in Sorcerer, it says, and I think this makes sense, that object and parasite demons can speak, but they probably don't very often. And they mostly communicate through, like, use of their powers. Mm. And since y'all only have object and parasite demons, the way I've kind of been thinking about this is that, like, your demon probably speaks to you the most out of the three, right? Mm -hmm. Because, again, the way we've conceived it, it is something that lives effectively in your ear canal. Yeah. Um, And so it can talk directly to you without anybody else hearing it. Okay, okay. I kind of like the idea of her responding out loud, though, even though people Mm -hmm. only hear one side of the conversation and probably she sounds a little crazy. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I don't even, (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. That's, oh God. Um, Okay, so let's just have her say to her demon, like, are you really going to stop me from knowing him? And at which point Ruby looks up and kind of, she lifts both hands and drops them back on the bar and says, you're nearly an adult. Do what you want. And <laughs> walks away. Perfect. Um, let's cut outside real quick where Samson, what's going on with you? I think Samson is talking to one of the line cooks who he knows really well. Um, and they're kind of just yeah, chatting. Um and starting to head around. I was even thinking that like maybe they're out back. They meet out back behind the kitchen and head to like maybe we have a kind of an external walk-in freezer slash cooler where like all of the beer is kept on tap and like keep a bunch of other stuff where all the kegs are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're headed in there. Okay. Well, I mean, take us take us through what this looks like. Yeah, sure. Um they get inside. Uh, do you have a name for a line cook on hand? A line cook. We could go with uh, Darcy Moore. M-O-O-R-E. Sweet. And she is, um, I think she is Hispanic. So they get into the freezer and Samson pulls out a little black leather bag, um, like the size of a Bible, basically. Maybe he pulls out a Bible that has a zipper on it. Um, That's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and unzips it, and inside he's got his kit, and pulls it out and starts prepping uh, his heroin. I don't know a better way to describe it than that. Gets it into the spoon, starts to add a little bit of water, starts heating it, and Darcy starts tying off. How how does he feel about sharing needles after the news that he got today? I don't think, I think he's been sharing needles with Darcy long enough that he doesn't feel particularly anything about it right now, not with her, because it's, she's one of the people who's like in his system, like in his cycle, and he doesn't, I think there's a part of him that's angry, that's like, maybe, like, I got this from you, like, you're a junkie, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't know who else you're doing this with, like, I don't know the company you keep, I don't know how, right? So I think there's a little bit of anger there and mostly just the awareness that there's nothing he can do and she's not as important to him as he is to him. So, and I think we get this this moment of, you know, as you shoot up and you you lean back and let the 
lean back against the cold wall and let the drug overtake you. You feel a vibration in you, in your blood veins again, that, that you know the beast has been sated, has been fed a little bit. And maybe, and you know, you can countermand me on this, but maybe it's when you're high that Abalazet can speak to you the easiest. Sure. So as you, you know, kind of not go under, but as you feel the effects, you can, the communication is less audible than it is sensory, but you can feel Abalazet tell you, oh, you finally got a challenge. Let's see if you can stand up to it. And you're not sure if it's referring to the job Irons has given you or if it's referring to the disease you have now contracted, but it goes silent. What does, so we fast forward a little bit. I kind of just want to get like two more, two more short scenes. Mm -hmm. Robert, give us what it looks like when you are on, when you're on stage. We, we know how you're dressed. Mm -hmm. How does the music affect the crowd, which while Samson was playing was pretty reserved and laid back? Robert likes to sort of follow the mood set by the last act um, so that the transition isn't too jarring. So he uh, starts with um, just sort of noodling on the bass. I guess I should, you know, state that the other uh, instruments are like, you know, drum, uh, there's a guitar, and someone on a keyboard you know it's nothing elaborate but it's you know it's just sort of like relaxed little jam for about you know maybe five eight minutes into the set but it progressively uh sort of picks up and my music terms are <laughs> really <laughs> terrible but um i guess like he starts to arpeggio a little more and that kind of grabs some of the crowd's attention and by you know maybe eight nine minutes in uh it goes from a jam to a more definable song mm, and cool. that song is also an original composition but it very much sounds like i wanted to say i was going to say the jerk but that that hadn't come out yet but um basically something that morris day in the time would have done and okay. it's kind of like sensual it's mellow but it's also platonically erotic right yeah i like that you know the crowd it's a bunch of regulars did we establish like who's exactly here this is a saturday night i take it right friday night friday yeah. night friday okay. night you know, he, he gets the crowd kind of up on their feet and they're swaying about, you know, here, there, everywhere. Um, but it's also not a riot yet. Cool. Yeah. I just wanted to get that, that picture of him on stage kind of commanding the crowd. And Joan, can we get a kind of a final image of you, whether you're like watching Robert or or how you're, so Robert's playing, right? We're in that moment where the crowd is really starting to pick up pace along with the music. And yeah. what are you doing, right? We know you have this kind of maybe unconscious, maybe not unconscious attraction to Robert. 
Um, but you've also like have been in a weird situation tonight. Yeah. So what are you, what are you doing in this penultimate shot? I think she is still behind the bar, leaning on the bar, but like not paying attention to any customers, just kind of like in a little daze, but like she's focusing that attention onto Robert, like as the thing that she's staring at. Um, so she's just kind of staring at Robert, but also like in somewhat of a, a daze, just like trying to figure out what the hell just happened with regard to somebody claiming to be her father. Mm-hmm. So to close, this has been this has been less of a get up and do things episode, which I think is good. Like I think we're setting a, a solid tone and laying a lot of groundwork for things that are going to go wrong later. Mm-hmm. But the last image, I not image event I want us to close with. So we get kind of a fade out. We get a montage a little bit of Robert playing, Robert packing up and leaving, maybe going home. And then Joan, Ruby, uh, and maybe a couple of other employees of the Rogue cleaning up at night. Ruby hands Joan a like a, a bag of trash to take out to the back, which I assume you take. Yes. Things aren't that bad <laughs> between y'all at the moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Joan takes the trash out to the back and um i think you you know you lob it over the wall into the the trash bin mm-hmm. and you maybe even like notice that there's a needle on the ground in the back which is probably the not the most unusual thing here and the rogue is up against forest right like it's i think it's in i don't know if it's in a strip mall but it it might be one of those like buildings which is in the same parking lot as a strip mall yeah set up against the clearing and you can hear kind of a a not a scuffling but a a grinding sound almost in Mm. the dark just beyond the edge of the trees i forget i'm trying to remember like the powers that we discussed was there any kind of like seeing in the dark thing why i'm trying to find well uh let's take a look at your your demon so Avathon has shapeshift, warp, shadow, and armor. Uh, shadow, does that making light in the shadow? We can look up its precise description here. Sorry, I just control left shadow. Um, yeah. And I'm getting to it. Um, the user controls, de- okay, so the user controls degree of illumination in the immediate area, which must be at least par- partly enclosed. So... Um, despite the name, Shadow allows light changes mm. ranging from strong indirect sunlight to absolute blackness. So yeah, and we could say that the you know the forest makes it at least partially enclosed okay. since it's, the trees are tight and everything. So maybe rather than like could she could she with the shadow make like it darker around herself so she can go in without being noticed to like see what the noise is? Yeah, I think you could do that. Okay. You, if you're trying to be unobserved, then... Yeah. So the way this system works is you only roll if you are in direct conflict with something. So if you're trying to be unobserved, then you would be rolling against something. If mm-hmm. you were to just try and like raise the light in the, in the area where you're hearing the grinding, I wouldn't call that a roll because the thing is not trying to hide from you. Okay. The thing that's making the sound is not trying to hide from you. But if you are trying to be unobserved, then that will take a roll. Um, yeah, let's try to be unobserved. 
Okay. Is it, what do I roll? So you're using Avathon's shadow ability to try and cloak yourself in shadow. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't we just call that a bonus die to your stamina so you can roll 3d8. I think this is probably against this creature's will, mm -hmm. which let me double check. I rolled and that is not a good roll. Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody what you rolled and go? Um, so we should try and make it as a standard thing. Like when we talk about our rolls, since this is how the system works, yeah. um, say your rolls from highest die to lowest die. Okay. So I rolled a four, a three and a two. <laughs> Um, and this creature's will is quite high, oh, so it rolled a 7, a 6, a 3, 3, and a 1. So <laughs> it had not a total success because you tied on one of the threes, but um, it gets two successes. It is aware of your presence. You don't know that, though. You wreathe yourself in shadows, and what do you, you said that you were going to step into the trees? Yeah, just like to where the sound is coming from so, to see if I can like, get a look at what's happening. Okay, yeah, that's not very difficult. You step, you know, four or five feet into the trees, and as your eyes adjust to the darkness, there is an alligator. <laughs> okay. It is probably 12 feet long, including the tail. Um, it's the largest alligator you've ever seen in your life, unless you've <laughs> been to, like, an alligator farm or something like that. You've probably seen alligators around, um, but not of that size and certainly not this close. Yeah. And the grinding that you were hearing was its tail kind of like slowly working through the undergrowth. Oh God. Uh, is it like coming at me or is it just sitting there? It is watching you. We're in the woods and not in the swamp, right? Like what is it doing? In I the mean, woods? you are, you are on the edge of the clearing, right? You're on the edge oh, okay. of the swamp. Okay, okay. Um, is there anything weird about it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Why don't you roll me a lore? What is my lore? Um, Four. So, 48? Yep. All right. Okay, I got an eight, a seven, a three, and a one. Okay. Um, and I'm going to roll its will again, which unfortunately is quite high, but you beat it. Yeah, um, so yeah. the highest it rolled was a seven. You rolled an eight. You recognize this. Maybe not immediately. You know, your heart skips a beat. Mm -hmm. But you recognize this as a demon. What's unnatural about it, right? What is, um, what is giving this creature away as not being right? Weird eyes? Uh, you, you said that so half-heartedly. No. <laughs> Um, slight sparkle. <laughs> oh, it's a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh god. What is what is something that you might notice that no one else would notice? Right. That might be a good way to think about it. You, as a sorcerer and someone who has lived with a demon since before birth, what? Yeah. What is something that you would notice about this creature that no one else would? Um, I mean, it could be something subtle about its claws. They have claws, yes, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
I keep going back to like something from Kingdom with like the claws being like a black that's like blacker than black, you know, that's like mm. like a, ex- like a, a void of of space rather than like a concrete, you know, whatever claws mm-hmm. are made of. Yeah, I I like that quite a bit. Yeah, okay. the it's void it's claws. <laughs> yeah, void claws. Yeah, that's what it has. Uh. Where they grip in the in the turf and the undergrowth, um, it seems as if they drink light up. Yes, perfect. And it charges you. Rude. Oh God. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we we don't need to make a big deal out of this in. The way I'm imagining this, you kind of like fall backwards a little bit. Yeah. Because it's not it's not actually attacking you. It just charges you. And then it, almost like a dog, it turns its head to one side and opens its mouth. And something falls onto the ground. And then it turns and waddles away in that way that <laughs> reptiles that are supposed to yeah. be in the water have. Yeah. Um, and disappears back into the trees. So what fell out of its mouth? You look down. I'm imagining you've... Uh, do you think you kind of like fell back down like onto your hands and are sitting on the yeah. ground? Or, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So you lean forward and look down and there is a human hand. Well, is there anything weird about the hand? Are there? Is there a ring? Is it a man hand? Is it a lady hand? And I think we should stop there. Okay, <laughs> great. Tune in next time to find out, is it a man hand? Is it a lady hand? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Thanks for tuning in to our first full episode of Sorcerer, everybody. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for tuning in to our excellent, very good podcast that we're all incredibly confident about and not at all insecure about recording. What Kiefer said. Yes. Peace. Cool. There we go. Great. Ooh. Uh, should we stop recording and, and upload yep. this? Shit. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Stop. Stop.